0: This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me business and climate change. Now onto Climate Rising.
1: It's the big people that you know about, the Facebooks, the Targets, the Ikeas that are deploying solar on the roofs. But there's a whole nother level of companies that are interested in doing it that aren't as well-versed, aren't as sophisticated in terms of energy purchases. And designing business models for them around how they aggregate demand and how they aggregate supply, I think, is a really interesting opportunity. I'm David Abel,
2: and this is Climate Rising a podcast from Harvard Business School that looks at the challenges and opportunities that climate change presents for businesses. Today, we'll be looking at the challenges facing the solar industry as it seeks to replace fossil fuels. With costs plummeting and the technology maturing, solar has made rapid advances over the past decade in the United States, growing on average by 50% a year. It now produces enough electricity to power more than 12 million homes in the United States. At the same time, the costs of installing solar systems have dropped by about 70%. The solar industry now employs about 240,000 Americans. By comparison, coal in the United States now employs little more than 50,000 people. But the picture has become less rosy in recent years. Since 2016, the industry has lost at least 18,000 jobs, much of that due to the Trump administration's decision last year to impose a 30% tariff on Chinese-produced solar panels. Billions of dollars in planned solar projects were frozen or canceled. And with federal and state tax credits set to expire in the coming years, the fate of the industry is uncertain. In a bit, we'll hear from Joe Lassiter, a retired professor of environmental management at Harvard Business School, someone who remains skeptical about solar. First, we'll talk to Abigail Ross Hopper, one of the nation's leading champions of solar. She's president and CEO of Solar Energy Industries Association, the national trade group for the solar industry. I started by asking her about the pros and cons of solar compared to other forms of renewable energy. And how much of its fate is tied to developments in storage
1: technology? Solar is a really unique energy source, right? Think about it. You can have a solar panel on your house and have this very personal relationship with your energy source. I love wind. You really can't do that with wind unless you live out in a farm in the middle of nowhere, Right. You can also put a big solar power plant in the middle of the desert, right, and create huge amounts of energy. Or if you're Walmart or Target or Ikea, you can put it on your roof. And so it has this adaptability that is unique, really, in the energy industry. And so that is one of the reasons why I think it will be the energy source of the future. The prices have come down so dramatically, so dramatically, that people are not having to choose going solar based on environmental concern. They're choosing it based on price. You want to save money? Go solar. Oh, it has the added benefit of actually sort of bringing down carbon costs, right? And also, you get power, your own power. You can choose where you want your electricity to come from. That's all great stuff, but it's actually going to save you money. And your question about storage, storage is the pairing of solar and storage is what's going to transform everything. I mean, if we had this conversation in five years, nothing that we're looking at now, I think, will be look like what we're going to see in the future. And again, there is that personal relationship everyone knows what a battery is right you plug your iphone in and it juices up and then you can use it all day similar with solar plus storage sun shines you save those electrons until you need them and then you can use them whenever whenever they're required and so as that product also comes down in cost and sort of the the product offerings get broader i think it will completely transform how we use energy in this country
2: fascinating Your association has forecast that solar generation in the United States will double in the next five years. How concerned are you about the increasing tensions with China? Could the projected growth be stymied by the tariffs and the growing trade war?
1: Yeah, the trade is definitely a a major concern for us. I think one of the things that you said in the opening was about the tariffs that were placed on our industry. That actually was applied to panels from every single country, not just Chinese panels. That continues to be a challenge for us. So we actually don't get very many of our panels from China anymore and have it for a couple of years. But there are all sorts of other pieces of the of solar panels and, and the balance of system, all the other things that happen to make a solar project live um, that are subject to tariffs. So the steel and aluminum tariffs, right, which have hit many, many industries, have also hit the solar industry because we use steel and aluminum in the racking systems, right? The, the things that either bolt to your roof or are in the middle of the desert. And so we are very cognizant of the, of the trade issues and are concerned.
2: Where are we getting most of our panels from now if we're not getting them from China? Are we developing them on our own? And what, what caused that to change?
1: So there's uh, two places. One, So a couple of years ago, in 2012 and 2014, 2015, there were tariffs placed on modules and cells coming in from China. And so there was a development of other countries, so places like Malaysia, South Korea— um, Singapore that have factories in them, and Mexico, and so th- those have been operating for a long time. When the tariffs got put in place last year, those are all tariffed now, all at the same amount. There have been some domestic investments in solar manufacturing here in the U.S. since the tariffs went into place. Uh, even at full capacity, they're not going to serve a huge portion of the market, and so we haven't. The tariffs have not solved the problem that I think the administration was trying to trying to resolve.
2: How important are federal and state tax credits and other incentives to maintaining the growth that we've been seeing? What else could state and federal officials do to spur demand for solar?
1: You know, our vision is that solar will be able to compete on price alone uh, in the future. Obviously, ideally when other fuels also compete on price alone. So I'm happy to talk about solar incentives, but we're both cognizant of the fact that that all fuel sources in this country have tax incentives and various other government support. Uh, But for solar specifically, um, it is an important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. Certainly making sure that homeowners who have invested in their systems have some certainty that that investment will remain, sort of what it was projected at the time they made that investment decision is important. Making sure that there is a fair transaction, right, between utilities and their customers in terms of the compensation for their excess energy. Um, but as we f- look out sort of on the federal level, right, and the federal tax incentive that exists for solar, um, the projections you referenced assume that that steps down, which in current law it's supposed to do. So solar will continue to grow, even knowing that. But if, but honestly, if we want to think about how we address the climate crisis, right, and what tools the federal government has at its disposal, and what might actually be able to get passed in this Congress, <laughs> which is, is a big if. Right. Uh, we know that the investment tax credit works, right? We know that it has, there's been like $140 billion deployed as a result of the investment tax credit. And our projections show that if we continue that policy, it will deploy more solar, right? And take more carbon emitting Fossil fuels off the grid.
2: And just for our listeners who don't know how the tax credits work, can you just outline how they work?
1: Sure. So the, it, it's called the investment tax credit because it's based literally on the investment. So if you spend a dollar, which that'd be pretty amazing if you get a solar system for a dollar, but if you could spend a dollar, thirty percent you get 30% back as a credit on your taxes. So multiply that by X.
2: Why, in your view, have the costs come down so significantly in recent years? And is that decline now slowing? Um, are those costs declining at the same rate everywhere or are those uh, are there regional differences? And how do you expect they'll change over the coming decade? It's
1: like any good technology right? You get more deployment, more more people buying your product. It becomes easier to produce it. You get better at producing it. your systems become more efficient, your financing becomes better. your investors understand the product you're selling, right For us, it's solar power. All of those things have really added to the cost declines. Um, it is sort of similar cost declines across the country where we see differential is really in the markets. So utility scale are the big projects out in the desert Um, or, you know, here in fields. Um, The commercial industrial are on the rooftops. And then Resi is obviously residential customers. And one of the areas where it's been harder to cut costs is in soft costs. So, for example, if you're going to put a solar system on your house, there's going to be an inspection by your city, there's going to be electricians up there, there's going to be this sort of this long process you have to go through. Those costs really add up and make up a big chunk of the residential costs that they've been much more difficult um, to cut. Well, how do I think it's going to change in the next coming years? I think technology will continue to evolve. I do. I think um, our federal government is spending a fair amount of money investing in technology, appropriately so. Uh, I think processes will get more efficient, right? And so... Customer acquisition, perhaps on the resi side, might, might get sort of more economic. And, and certainly permitting, we're trying to work on permitting and getting rid of some of those soft costs. And then I also think the financing piece shouldn't be understated. Um, understanding what the asset class is, right, and making sure investors are comfortable with it, comfortable with how it performs over the long term, so that there's more comfort and you don't have to price in as much risk is important, I think, as we go from solar projects to solar plus storage projects. We're going to have that learning curve all over again with financiers, right? So they understand how the asset performs over time. But I think that will continue to bring costs down as well.
2: But that 70 percent decline that we've seen in mm-hmm. recent years, it, do you see that slowing uh, or do you see that uh, trajectory remaining?
1: So we're about to embark on a new decade, right? The 2020s. And we, we have uh, termed the 2020s the solar plus decade. Two percent of our, the nation's electricity generation comes from solar now. We think it will be 20% by 2030. So to get there, we do need to bring costs. By
2: 2030. Yes.
1: So in the next decade, go from 2% to 20%. That's a obviously a huge increase. Um, but to do that, sort of our assumptions tell us we need to bring costs down by another 50%. You know, the trajectory is going to continue to be pretty rapid and pretty steep, um, but necessary.
2: Walk us through how solar technology has changed in recent years. Uh, what do you see as potential advancements in the technology going forward? For example, when might we see office building windows covered in solar PV or similar technology built into cars like on their roof to help power electric cars uh, or even built into roads? As I've heard, there've been some experiments in China.
1: So all of those things, I think, will continue to evolve. Um, I'm not the technologist in the family, uh, but I do think as we look at sort of what our, what the Department of Energy is investing in, they are investing in a couple of things. One is that cell technology, right? Right now it's photovoltaic, but there's other materials that we can use, um, and that work is going on and incredibly promising. Some of it is a bit more sustainable, right, and more easily, easily manufactured, and so that's important. I think um, the applications, basically, is what you're talking about, right? Where can we put all of this solar? And as we think about certainly roads, certainly buildings, um, parking structures, stadiums. I think that there'll be innovation in how we use it, um, and then that, fi- like you're talking about the film, right? For the windows and things, I think that that will that will be the norm. I do think the other area of of evolution, if you will, we not surprisingly look to California, right? California passed a mandate that all new home construction has to have solar on the roof by 2020. That's going to completely transform both the housing market and the energy market in that state. Um, Some cities across the country are also requiring that mandate. And I think that will be another area where there's transformation and sort of what seems odd now is going to become normal.
2: Aside from hippie California, where else is that (laughs) happening?
1: (laughs) There are some some, uh, cities in the great state of Florida, which I don't think has quite the same hippie reputation, uh, that have done that. I think some of the uh, cities in Texas, um, places that have the solar resource, um, and perhaps their state government isn't quite ready to a- embrace those mandates, but local government is.
2: What are your biggest concerns about how public policy in the United States and abroad will affect the solar industry?
1: So I think that your question is sort of twofold. What Are we doing enough to remain a leader in terms of technology development and research and development? And I think that that we certainly are in research and development. We have invested and will continue to invest uh, in that it's sort of ironic that last few years, the Trump administration has has proposed either zeroing out or significantly cutting those funds. Um, and every year, a Republican Congress has put them back in. And so it sort of speaks to how valuable that investment is. It is valued by people of all political parties. So I think on the R&D side, we're doing well. Obviously, we can have a national conversation about manufacturing in this country and sort of what we're doing well and what we're not. Um I think there are there are whole sectors of the solar industry where we do have strong manufacturing base, things like trackers and inverters, sort of the wiring systems that are important to the projects. Uh, we're doing well on uh, in that regard.
2: But the last administration really, you know, had a kind of bully pulpit on these issues. And, you know, the Department of Energy in those days was really championing all kinds of uh, companies and ideas and technologies. Is even if Congress keeps putting the money back in, is there some sort of loss without having a champion in the White House for this?
1: There's certainly a lost opportunity. Obviously our current president is a big fan of oil and gas and of uh, the nuclear industry right and talks a lot about how we revive coal plants um, I am not particularly concerned about it because the the market has spoken right <laughs> the, the market there there's actually, a finite amount of things that the federal government can do to interrupt the energy markets. And they're trying to do it, don't get me wrong. Um, And we are fighting them voraciously on all of those fronts. Um, But so far, people that run energy markets, people who run the grid and people that run utilities understand that this transformation is happening. And so we have, you know, utilities on their own, not because of regulation or not because of mandate or not because of pressure from their public service commission saying we're going 100% clean energy. We're going 100% renewables. And we're doing it because it makes sense for our shareholders and for our customers. It's going to cost less money. And so when you have forces like that at work, my opinion is that there's only so much that the federal government can do. Would it be better to have someone with a clear vision about how we solve the climate crisis and sort of put, put in place plans to uh, aggressively do that? Absolutely. But our, our industry is not going to be halted by this.
2: If you were uh, starting out in, you know, leaving Harvard Business School and you had an interest in uh, getting into the solar industry, what what are some of the opportunities that are most promising?
1: Well, I talked about financing, right? Reform and sort of continued evolution in financing being a critical part of bringing down costs and, and greater adoption. So if I was a recent Harvard Business School grad, I would think about opportunities to Marry those two, right, finance plus renewable energy. I think uh, one of the one of the trends we see in the industry is corporate procurement, right? So it's it's the big people that you know about, the Facebooks, the Targets, the Ikeas that are deploying solar on the roofs. But there's a whole nother level of companies that are interested in doing it, either for corporate sustainability or for cost or both, um, that aren't as well-versed, aren't as sophisticated in terms of energy purchases and designing business models for them around how they aggregate demand and how they aggregate um, supply, I think is a really interesting opportunity. And if I was a recent grad, I'd go figure that out. I think there are lots of opportunity for small businesses and startups. Resi- you know, this the solar industry is both national, but incredibly unique, right? Every state has its own pricing system. Every energy market is different. There's a different set of rules. It's one of the challenges of being in the energy space, but also one of the opportunities. So we see tons of startups around software design as we think about how do we incorporate all of this solar onto the grid, right? And how do we build the systems that allow that kind of back and forth flow? Um, I think there's opportunity there. I think that in the technology space, there's lots of opportunity. And I think that especially on the residential side, you know, there's only so much you can do to standardize sort of that one, you know, one by one by one um, customer acquisition and and customer um, engagement. Uh, and so I think that there's there's great opportunity. I will say the thing that is changing is if you look at some of the oil majors, some of those companies that I engage with on the oil and gas side have are making big capital investments on the renewable side. And so they are purchasing – they're both purchasing companies or, or stakes in companies that are doing solar deployment or battery deployment – and they're also becoming off-takers themselves. So, for example, ExxonMobil signed a deal with a renewable energy company for wind and solar production to help fuel their oil-producing facilities in Texas. Right. So there are these multi-technology solutions that are being created that certainly were not just a couple years ago.
2: As more cities and states call for building 100% renewable energy systems, how much do you expect uh, that solar will be a part of that and how much does geography play in that equation?
1: Solar will be a huge part of that, and I think geography geography will play an important part, but maybe not in the way you think. Um, you are right that the sun resource is different in different places, um, but it is not. That's not the the gating factor. The real gating factor is around access and transmission. Right? How to get? How, where do you put these projects, and then how do you get the energy to the people that need it? And solar is actually uniquely situated, as I said at the beginning. It can, you know, grow and expand. It could be five panels on top of a house to a huge power plant, and so the geography is helpful in that regard because we can we can site it and size it, given you know where it's where the location is available. Um, so that's that does differentiate it from some of the other kind of renewables out there. Um, but I, the importance of transmission in terms of getting. Electrons to people that need them can't be understated.
2: Joe Lasseter has studied the viability of renewable energy around the world, but he has his doubts. It's unclear to him whether solar can really make a difference in ultimately weaning ourselves off fossil fuels. In the
3: end, people want power that's available 24 by 7 by 365, and they want it to be cheap. And there are limitations in renewables today that I'm sure we will address in time that are keeping the world from being able to get the clean, cheap, reliable energy that fundamentally
2: it needs. And those are barriers. And are those barriers uh, so high that we will likely not see the doubling of electrical generation from solar power over the next few years as as abby suggests is likely to happen
3: i I think we're liable to see even greater growth in in capacity Uh, again the thing that matters the most is is not kilowatts or watts or gigawatts but gigawatt hours not how much power you have in place not how much money you can spend building power but how much energy can you literally deliver to people that they can make use of on a continuing basis and i think we're going to have a hard time getting enough energy from renewable resources to change the rate at which fossil fuels are being burned around the world the world needs 24 by 7 by 365 day power uh, it needs high quality power people need it to to run their homes to run factories They need it for transportation. They need it for all the things that you and I use electricity for that we take absolutely for granted when we walk into a room and and flip a switch. And the developing world wants the same kind of power with the same availability at the same low cost that you and I enjoy. And they're going to get that whether it comes from fossil fuels or renewables or any other source.
2: How much of a problem is it that in countries from the United States to Australia, electoral sea changes have brought new administrations that have taken very different approaches to promoting renewable energy?
3: That's a, a, a big problem. And, and it's one that uh, companies in some cases can look around. But if you really want steady progress on a problem, you need continuity of policy. And whether it's the, the Yellow Jackets in France the the Australia the Australian elections, uh, the policies that our own government has gone through around flip-flopping on on the Paris agreements, that kind of stutter-stepping keeps people from making the long-term commitments in capital, in human resources, in careers, uh, in changing their own habits, uh, to change the energy picture. So, lack of continuity is a problem, and and since we live in democracies, lack of continuity is a thing that democracies have is a weakness. Uh, But I think we tend to like democracy more than we like authoritarian control over our choices.
2: What are, in your view, the most effective policies that would stimulate demand for solar and enable it to continue to grow at a steady rate?
3: Well, I think the the big thing is to recognize that solar is a piece of the puzzle. Uh, So you hear expressions today that people say quickly, that I think confuse the electric, solar is cheaper than coal, well, unless the sun's not shining. Things of that kind, I think, confuse people as to what we need to get done and the magnitude of the problem and the rate of change that's going to be necessary. So I think first, a more honest discussion of the real energy problems that the world faces and a recognition that if we want to change it, we're going to have to change a lot of the things we've gotten used to doing.
2: What should we be doing to try to persuade other countries, such as China and India, to spend more on renewable energy than on building new coal plants? I
3: think the most practical thing we can do for China and India is to make natural gas an alternative to coal, blend it with renewables to give people reliable, low-cost grids with low local air pollution. Certainly, there's more carbon pollution, half of what it is with coal. Uh, but certainly they get a big improvement in local air quality, and they get a network, renewables plus natural gas, which is can deliver electricity 365 by 7 by 24.
2: This is something of your mantra, marrying solar with natural gas as a backup, uh, especially at nighttime and cloudy days. Why does that make sense um, when you have to spend millions, and depending on the scale, billions of dollars, to create an infrastructure with pipelines and new plants uh, to facilitate that natural gas or, or other kind of fossil fuel supply.
3: Without a doubt, you have to look at what capital investments make sense over what point in time. At any one point in time, you're going to make an investment, which is a bridge to the future. The bridge is not a permanent structure. It changes over time. Uh, I read an incredibly interesting story today about energy storage in a facility in Utah, uh, which is going to be burning natural gas in a gas turbine as part of a storage facility. They're going to mix it with hydrogen developed from a renewable energy array. And over time, they hope to substitute hydrogen for all of the natural gas and as a result, have a completely uh, neutral renewable grid uh, or fossil fuel emissions neutral grid. Those are interesting ideas, and I think what we've got to do is stay focused on the problem, and the problem is reliable power for people, low-cost power for people, and clean power for people, not technology-specific solutions of renewable or nuclear or fossil or whatever, but stay on the things that people really care about, and they care about their electrons being cheap, they care about them being reliable, they care about them being clean. They don't
2: care what technology is used to produce them right but if we are to live up to our uh our commitments to paris and as well as other countries if we are to really try to bend the curve of the accelerating uh warming process to try to keep us below uh two degrees celsius or one temperatures, or even one and a half which right. doesn't seem even you know practical right. anymore um but I- if we are to try to do that it will mean that we need to really cut ourselves off of all fossil fuels as quickly as possible. So if, if we were to be building all of this additional infrastructure for natural gas, marrying that with solar, or wind, uh, isn't that problematic? Wouldn't we be perhaps better off investing in maybe the less efficient or effective storage technology that exists that might be able to be upgraded over time so that we were building more of the renewable energy infrastructure as opposed to focusing and and spending money on on carbon intensive uh infrastructure
3: yeah i think the the model is you go from extremely carbon intensive to less carbon intensive each and every day and and I think you'll be able to support that path, i.e. afford to take that path and get popular support at it if you do it in an extremely low-cost fashion. If you start with extremely high costs, voters will revolt. They've revolted in Australia. They revolt in France. They've revolted in in provinces in Canada. I think you've got to show people steady progress and be very efficient in how you approach it. Uh, I think in general... uh, If you look at natural gas, it's dramatically decreased the amount of coal that's being burned in the world. It's dramatically reduced local air pollution, which saves lives today, not only lives in the future. I think it's a valuable step along the way. All of that economics has to be taken into account as you play it. And and I don't think there's a simple answer of let's all build renewables. I think that will cost too much and you won't get the political support you need And you won't get the power that people have to have in order to run their lives.
2: And what do you see the promise of the solar industry to be in terms of it being a key player in our future grid? If I step back and and look at all the energy sources,
3: uh, the decreases in costs, particularly in solar, have been stunning. And by the way, there's still opportunity for substantial decreases in solar technology itself. And there will be new improvements in uh, and batteries that come. Uh, But tomorrow morning, you can take renewables, plus gas turbines acting as a battery, and you can build them any place in the world. And you can keep the coal in the ground, and you can deliver people the power they need, the air quality that they need to have health with. And you can make all of that available to them if you have the will to do it. Uh, I wouldn't wait for the technology of batteries to persist. I'd get started, and I'd get it cleaner every day. The the lesson of investing in clean technologies uh, in 2008 was that people wanted secure energy, i.e. energy that couldn't be manipulated by foreign powers. They wanted clean energy, uh, energy that was not associated with carbon emissions or in particular in parts of the world uh, with local air quality. And they wanted power that was available when they needed it, that, that it could meet their need. And the truth of the matter is that we tried to solve a, a too hard a problem. <laughs> the problem that the world solved was not clean, but cleaner, not cheap, but cheaper, not secure, but secure. And I solved it with natural gas, the single greatest gift to the environment <laughs> that we've had because it's driven coal from the market. And by the way, new innovations will drive natural gas from the market at some point in time. But with all new technologies, there's always a pattern of adoption and adopting too soon is as big a mistake as adopting too late.
2: And now here's Mike Toffel, a professor of environmental management at Harvard Business School, with a wider view about the solar industry.
0: We just heard Abby Hopper talk about how the solar industry expects that the amount of U.S. electricity generated by solar will increase tenfold from 2% to 20%, in just 10 years. And Joe Lasseter said that because solar power is intermittent, it only generates power when the sun shines. It requires scalable storage that won't be economically competitive for a long time. And so natural gas will be used to generate electricity for decades to come. While that seems like disappointing news to those who argue that we need to completely decarbonize as soon as possible, Joe points out that we shouldn't lose sight that it's actually good news that natural gas is replacing coal, especially in places like China and India, not only because it's less carbon-intensive, but also because burning coal causes so many other health problems. Their conversation was largely about grid-scale electricity generation, but that's just one part of the solar story. Abby highlighted that solar panels can be a distributed source of power operating off the grid. And solar can also be a mobile source that can be transported by vehicle or even people walking or biking. It's interesting to think about how these features of solar are leading to innovative applications and business models that might disrupt a wide range of technologies and industries. For example, you can't generate electricity from natural gas at your house, but you can from solar. That means with solar, you can own or rent your own on-site power plants. And when you have rooftop solar and are connected to the grid, you can draw from the grid when you need more power than your solar array produces, or you can sell to the grid when your rooftop solar plant generates more electricity than you need. Solar can also be economically deployed off the grid to reach some remote areas, which can avoid the expense of building out the grid. This includes both developed and developing countries where the grid might not ever reach. There are lots of entrepreneurs working on this, including HBS alumna Nicole Pointexter, who co-founded the company Black Star Energy to provide solar power to remote communities in Ghana and is expanding into Sierra Leone, Nigeria, and Benin. In a sense, solar enables electricity to skip the grid, just like cell phones enable telecommunication without building out telephone lines. Another benefit of rooftop solar is that companies and households can avoid blackouts when storms knock out the grid's power lines. Think of Puerto Rico, where Hurricane Maria decimated its electricity grid and damaged 80% of its power lines. This resiliency feature is increasingly important as climate change brings more frequent and intense storms. Local solar can also shield you and your business from intentional blackouts, like those in California that are meant to prevent wildfires another risk that will only grow with climate change. The U.S. military is increasingly building solar on its bases, in part to build resilience against potential cyber attacks on our electrical grid. Another totally different type of solar application leverages its mobility. Most of us don't even notice that our pocket calculators have long been powered by solar. But the next generation of mobile solar is solar mats, which U.S. Army and Marine troops carry in their backpacks to power their technology. A solar mat is not only lighter than the batteries they replace, but they also reduce the need for risky missions to replenish batteries and diesel fuel to power generators. And innovations are also taking place with solar panels being installed on cars and airplanes, potentially disrupting fossil fuels used to power transportation. It's this wide range of applications and the wide range of business models that will develop as a result that has me really excited about the future of solar.
2: That's it for Climate Rising this week. I'm David Abel. In our next episode, we'll look at the challenges facing the nation's growing wind industry.
0: The hardware is just sensational. And the growth in terms of the scale of these turbines and what their ability to generate, it is phenomenal to see how these machines are able to capture a natural resource and convert that into clean energy. What it means is that this industry is really very much becoming part of the, the backbone of uh, a number of countries when they look at their kind of energy future and the generation mix.
2: Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, David Abel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback.